tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. That's any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church. That's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. The voice in my head... <laughs> asked me if this had been my theme song for many years. And yes, I should explain it. Well, why not? <laughs> it's the Ode to Joy from Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, Freude schöne Goethe von den Tochter aus Elysium. That's poetry, yeah? And, uh, and, uh, but it's to a salsa beat that sort of is the two loose ends of my ministry. I'm a German among Puerto Ricans. It was an interesting life. And still is. That said, yeah, Puerto Ricans are a lot of fun. <laughs> well, moving along. And the food is wonderful. Oh, just if you haven't tasted Puerto Rican food, try. What's the go-to if you haven't tried it before? Well, you'd want to do either rice and beans and uh, um, steak and onions, uh, steak and cebollao, or a pernil, which is a, a, a pork shoulder that's marinated in garlic, and the, some people use oregano and different spices, and and uh, that with uh, rice and gandules. Um, gandules are pigeon peas in English. It's unbelievably good food. So we should do a recipe corner on this show. A recipe corner, that's a thought. <laughs> a recipe, uh, except if we poison someone, <laughs> that would be terrible. Yeah, we don't want to be liable. No, for no we don't want to be liable for poisoning the faithful. We need all of them we can get. Well, I don't know what we're talking about. We're talking about recipes, and we're off the track before we've even prayed. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit, they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the nations by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same Spirit to have right judgment in all things and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, all right. Let us let us uh, open what the big book on the coffee table. That's it. Yes. <laughs> We are in the letter to the Hebrews, uh, which I think is well-named. I shared with you the other day, and we'll share with you again, uh, my theory that that this is sort of, in my words, proto-Talmudic. Uh, my classmate and friend, Father Brankin, calls this the Catholic Talmud hour. Uh, it's sarcasm. But, uh, you know, the oh, let me tell you what the Talmud is. The Talmud is a... a, a compilation of two separate works. One is the Mishnah, which means the retelling. Uh, um, 
It's believed by the Jews that there was an oral tradition given by God to Moses and the elders of Israel on Mount Sinai. And this explained in detail uh, the rituals of the temple. And this was passed on generation to generation. That's called the Mishnah, the retelling. This was written down when the temple was destroyed, lest it be lost. Now, rabbis commented on the Mishnah. And that comment, that commentary, which is, I think, largely in Aramaic. The Mishnah's in Hebrew, and, and if I'm right about this, again, take what I say, as I always say, with a grain of salt. Um, the, there you go with the salt shaker. The, uh, um, the, 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 the Gemara is, is a commentary on the Mishnah. So what you have is, in the center of the page, you have the Mishnah. And then around the edges, like side notes and top notes and end notes, you have rabbinic commentary. And to one of us, it makes absolutely no sense. To one of us non-Jews, it starts, as I said the other day, in the midst of a discussion about when it is proper to say the hero Israel in the temple at night. <laughs> okay. Uh, and it deals with just questions about... About the law. Minutia, yes. Mishnah Minutia. Exactly the voice in my head comments. So the the um, <clears throat> we don't regard it as inspired, but it's very interesting, uh, especially the Mishnah. The Gemara, not so much. But the Mishnah is very interesting for us because it talks about the temple, which we believe is a prefiguring of the liturgy of the Eucharist, in a way, and the nature of the church. So uh, it's very interesting. Again, we don't consider it inspired. This idea, though, of the Mishnah, this oral tradition, does mean something to us because Jesus gave an oral tradition, we believe, to his disciples, his elders. Uh, he was recapitulating, repeating uh, Moses on the Mount. When you see in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus goes up the hill and sitting down, he opens his mouth and says, that is, in a sense, the new Mount Sinai, that the, the Sermon on the Mount, which everybody thinks was given to all these people. You know, you see in pictures, uh, I've ground this axe before. I should hurry up and then actually get to the text for today. But you see in pictures all the people streaming down the mountain, listening to Jesus who's standing up there preaching. Look at the text. That's not what it says. He gathered his disciples to him and went up the mountain. He got away from the crowd. And this will have to do with uh, the second reading. We'll see something here in the gospel reading about that. He, he wanted to teach his disciples. So he goes up just as Moses went up the mount with the elders of Israel. Jesus goes up the mount with the elders of, of, of Israel renewed. Not the new Israel. I don't think there is such a thing, but Israel renewed. So uh, there's this parallelism uh, and this idea that there is an oral tradition, which uh, so many Christians say, no, no, it's just sola scriptura, Bible alone, Bible alone. I shared the other day, if you look at the two genealogies of Jesus, the Bible alone is not sufficient. The Bible is not sufficient for its own interpretation. You need the, the wisdom of the church, the experience of the church, our tradition for 2,000 years and our literary heritage of 2,000 years uh, to explain what seem to be contradictions in the Bible. If you depend on the Bible alone, it's clear the Bible contradicts itself. However, if you hear, oh, that's what it means, 
uh, uh, particularly, the, uh, I think the best example of the genealogies of Jesus from King David on, they're two different families. They were families that intermarried, um, but they were different lineages. Well, this is easily explained by Sextus Julius Africanus, uh, an early Christian historian who wrote a little over a century after the time of Christ. He, the early Christians looked at these things that seemed to be contradictory, and they investigated them. He went and interviewed the relatives of Jesus who were still around. So he, the Bible is not a, self, a self-interpreting book, that it's the function of the bride of Christ, the church, to, to, to apply it and translate it. So this idea of the mission of being delivered to the elders of Israel and the oral tradition of Christianity being handed to the elders of the church— it's a parallelism. Ah, I wasn't going to talk about that, but I did. Well, let's go to Hebrews, the second chapter, the 14th verse. So this is very Talmudic. The word Talmud means a study, and a Talmud is a disciple. And this precise dissection of each word that we see in the letter to the Hebrews is, is a very Jewish style of thinking. So since the children share in blood and flesh, Jesus likewise shared with them, that through death he might destroy the one. Well, this doesn't mean much to us. If we don't understand, it's a very, very precise uh, dissection of an idea. Surely he did not help angels, but rather descendants of Abraham. What's that about? Well, angelology was huge at the time of Christ, and there were whole so- all sorts of sects that said, no, 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 you can't go directly to God. You go to these lower angels who go to other angels who go to other angels who go to other angels— we believe in angels. There are re- a reality in our life, but they don't stand between us and God. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Uh, they facilitate our communication with the Lord, our direct communication with the Lord. Uh, so uh, uh, this idea, uh, he didn't, he, you know, he, this is what the author is saying. This isn't about the angels. It's about his promise to Abraham Therefore, he had to become like them. You know, people say, I can't identify uh, with a God who is this or, or Jesus who is that. Or I don't identify with Jesus. He, on the other hand, identifies with me. He's taken my weakness on him so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest before God to expiate the sins of the people. Now, this is the, this is the kicker in this. Because he himself was tested through what he suffered— the word test is peradzin in Greek. It means to test or to tempt. It's exactly the same word. It's the word that's at the end of the Our Father, lead us not into the temptation. And why, you may ask, would God test us in the first place? God knows, God, does, God doesn't need to test me to see what's in my heart. He knows what's in my heart. And the people I live with, they know what's in my heart. The only person who doesn't know what's really in my heart is me. God does not work with unconfessed sin. Now, by that, I do not mean the sacrament of reconciliation, though the sacrament of reconciliation is very important in this process. But God does not work without sin, with sin <laughs> that I haven't admitted. That's not a sin. I'm not sinning. You know, I don't owe God an explanation. God owes me an explanation. That's the sin of presumption. And we live in a very presumptuous generation, a generation that decides it will judge God. But this idea of testing, why does God test us? So that I might see what's in me. And knowing what's in me, I might confess it and God might begin to heal it. 
So this is this is very important. He so Jesus was tested and tempted. And you know what? He wasn't tempted for his sake. I really believe he was tempted and tested for the sake of the devil, that the devil might know he was beaten, and that 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 the people around him might know that he was God, the Son of God. So Jesus went through this process of testing. Not for his benefit, not for the Father's benefit, but for our benefit and, in a certain sense, for the the destruction of of the enemy. So he was tested by what he suffered. We're we're going to read later that, that son though he was, he learned obedience through what he suffered. If Jesus had to learn obedience through what he suffered, and I complain about my sufferings, Jesus genuinely suffered. So this is a very profound uh, text. Uh, that 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 saying that Jesus, the great high priest, chose to identify with us. We don't choose to identify with him. He chose to identify with us, uh, that, that he might uh, invite us to forgiveness, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest before God to expiate the sins of, of the people. Well, doesn't he do that automatically? No, he does not do that automatically. We must come to him. <laughs> Jesus says... Where I am, there will my followers be. We go to him. He doesn't. He doesn't so much uh, uh, say there, there. I'll meet you where you're at. No, come to where I am, and I will offer sacrifice for the expiation of your sins. All right, let's go to the gospel. You know, there's so much more that I want to say about that, but eh, time is a running. All right, the gospel. Uh, of course, very interestingly, Jesus entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Simon's mother-in-law is sick with a fever. Yes, he had a mother-in-law, and the only way I know you can get one of those is by being married. Peter was married, and uh, <clears throat> there are people I believe in Antioch. In in uh, is it now is Syrian Antioch, which is now in south southwestern Turkey, uh, southeastern Turkey rather. Um, who claim descent from from St. Peter. So very interesting. Why not? So they brought to him all who were sick, possessed by demons, and then, uh, 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 very interesting, he says, he didn't permit them to speak because they knew him. The demons knew him from when they had had still been in, in heaven in that sense. Uh, so... Um, he didn't permit them to speak. Why did did especially in the Gospel of Mark does Jesus always say to someone who's healed now, "Don't tell anyone about this." Doesn't permit the demons to speak because they knew them. His hour had not yet come, and the problem was if someone declared himself the Messiah, and there were all sorts of sons of God around. You know, how come Jesus just didn't say, "I'm the Son of God"? So there, because lots of people said that. Every monarch, every king, every every grand person said, "Oh, I'm a son of the gods." Jesus didn't say it. He proved it by what he did. So uh, also uh, they were expecting Messiah. And when someone said, I'm the Messiah, people would run home, get a sword, kill a Roman, and the streets would run with blood. Jesus was saying, I'm not, if that's your idea of the Messiah, I'm not your man. So uh, Jesus was very discreet about his identity. Uh, we just want him to come out and blather like, well, like I do. But he didn't. He wasn't a blatherer. He weighed his words and uh, and uh, said what was appropriate when it was appropriate. Well, he goes off to pray. Now, this is another interesting thing. Rising very early before dawn, he, he left, went off to a deserted place where he prayed. Uh, if Jesus, the Son of God, 
the only innocent man on his own merits ever born, our Blessed Mother was innocent, but uh, by the grace of God, he on his own merits was 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 totally innocent. If he needed to get up early to pray, I probably should never be off my knees when you think of it. I should always be in prayer uh, because if he if he felt the need to pray, how much more should I feel that need? So Simon and those who were with him pursued him and on finding him said, everyone is looking for you. And they translate this, let us go on to the nearby villages. It doesn't quite say that in Greek. It says, Literally, well, let us go elsewhere. I, one of my favorite lines in Scripture, Father, they're looking for you. Tell them I'm not here. I don't think it's the same thing quite. But we read in the Gospel of, of John, I believe in the 8th chapter, that Jesus says, I always do what is pleasing to him, that is, to the Father. Jesus did not respond to people because they asked him to. He responded to them because the Father wanted him to do so. There are all sorts of times in the Scripture where Jesus says no. We read uh, he came to his own uh, town and he could only work a a few healings because of their lack of faith. Jesus could not heal the sick because they hindered him with lack of faith. Yeah, there were times when he, he had to say no. The rich young man comes up and uh, he says, no, you're, you're not ready to follow me. Uh, the the garrison demoniac wants to follow him and he says, no, go home. Minister to your family. That's what you should do. Jesus, I remember hearing someone who said that, that uh, Jesus was radically available to everyone. No, he wasn't. <laughs> he, he was radically available to his heavenly father. And he did what was pleasing to the Father. And when someone asks you to do something, well, if you were a Christian, you'd be on this committee. If you were a Christian, you'd be doing this. Let me pray about it. Now, what do you mean pray about it? This is a good thing. You should be doing it. Why? Why? Well, because it's a good thing. Well, maybe a good thing for you. I don't know if it's a good thing for me. I'm going to pray about it. You don't jump into everything. St. Paul told uh, St. Timothy, do not be anxious to lay hands on everyone. In other words, uh, Look before you leap in this Christian business because you want to do what is pleasing to the Father. If you go off half-cocked and do what you think is right without having at least prayed and said, Lord, do you want me to do this? Uh, We need as a body and as individuals to learn how to hear God. You're never going to hear him perfectly. St. Paul says in the first letter to the Corinthians, we know in, in part, we prophesy in part. You're never going to get it perfect, but you can get it better than better than uh, 1%, uh, you know, that uh, you want it to be 99% God, 1% you. It's usually 1% me, or 1% God, 99% me. You really want to be able to hear from God. And when you make a decision, to be able to say, this is why I'm doing it, A, B, C, D. I believe this is what God wants me to do. And even I think if we get it wrong, God will will bless the effort. So, Jesus did not just do things because people wanted him to do it. He did it because the Father wanted him to do it. Uh, he was Im- immensely compassionate, but he did nothing except that which he heard from the Father. And uh, it'd be smart of us to imitate him. All right, let's go to a break. We'll come back with letters, and the phones will be open at 888-914-9149. 888-914-9149. Stump, the Reverend Know-It-All. Easier to do than you think.
Our sponsor, the University of Dallas, provides a rigorous liberal arts education that forms the whole person for wisdom, truth, and virtue. Learn more about The Catholic University for independent thinkers at relevantradio.com forward slash U Dallas. that this is, I suppose it's appropriate, because I want to ask your prayer for somebody who happens to be Cuban, a, a dear friend of mine who is, she's very ill, and um, Lord, I ask you to bless her and to, to give the doctors wisdom and, and uh, just give her great hope and great faith in Jesus' name. All right, thanks for joining me in prayer for that. This is a dear friend who's gotten a very difficult diagnosis, and um, um so we're praying for her and her family. They're wonderful people. All right, let us now go to letters. Yes, the letter thing. All right. Oh dear. Uh, this is this You're is already exasperated, and we well, haven't even read the this letter. This is an interesting letter, and I, I it's going to take real knowledge on my part. And well, I'm not so sure about that. All right. This is uh, I, I I forgot to include what this is from uh, um, Rick. And I forgot to include what fear is in Hebrew. Yara, the root meaning of the word yara is to flow and related to words meaning to stream or the flowing of water. In Hebrew thought, uh, what can be felt in danger is felt in the presence of any awesome sight or person of great suffering, or of great authority rather. Uh, though these feel these Feelings flow out of the person through their actions, such as shaking with fear or bowing down in authority. Well, that's kind of interesting. It's an interesting letter. Um, I must have missed another letter that commented on it. But Yara is uh, this idea of fear of the Lord. It really can be translated also as awe in the presence of the Lord. So, eh, well, thanks, Rick. That's interesting. Oh, well, this is, ah, this is, uh, uh, um, this is, uh, again, I always had trouble with fear. There's another letter. Uh, with fear of God, I started looking up words in Hebrew, Greek, the Bible, and the dictionary to the English meaning of fear is not what it means. My outlook, um, let me see, what, what, hold on, hold on here. Oh, dear. Well, I, what, 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 uh, this uh, young man is, is saying is is fear of the Lord is, is, you know, what about love casts out fear? Well, should we be afraid of God? I look at it this way. When I was a little kid, I was afraid of my dad because dad, dad never, ever struck us physically. He didn't have to. He had what we children called the hairy eyeball. He could look at you and Hope you did what you knew you had to do. He was a very disciplined man himself and expected of his children. Very, very loving man. But uh, and as I say, he he never, never. We were never struck physically, which back in the fifties was an unusual thing. So, but I obeyed him because I feared the consequence of not obeying him. Then uh, this happens, I think, in the lives of most young men. There comes, you know, you're grown up when you when you can say to yourself, gosh, dad was right. Um, the, the, uh, uh, I obey my father. He is no longer in this world, but I obey my father 
not because I'm afraid of him, but because I know he loved me and he was right about these things. Um, so we read in the scriptures that fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of wisdom. Love is the end of wisdom. So this idea of fearing God, if you do not obey God out of uh, love and realization that he's right, obey him out of fear. <laughs> because God, to fall, as the letter of the Hebrews says elsewhere, I believe it's in the letter of the Hebrews, to fall into the hands of the living God is a fearsome thing. It is. So uh, um, there's an appropriate fear, uh, just as we have an appropriate fear of the discipline uh, the righteous discipline of our parents, so too we should have an appropriate fear of the discipline of God. So that's not a pleasant thing, but nonetheless, it is true. Now, okay, the finding of the mouse, the clicking of the mouse, and on to the next letter. All right, let's see here. And maybe that, ah, there it is, okay. Oh, good grief. Good grief, that's, Amen. I have two questions about the same thing. Broadly, can a non-Catholic enter into a covenant? Is the church uh, the only and valid minister of covenants? No, no, uh, not at all. Uh, uh, a marriage between two non-Catholics can be covenantal, definitely. But you have to intend the covenant uh, to enter into a real covenant. Uh, again, a refresher that that a contract is I give to you that you might give to me. A covenant is I give you myself that you might give me yourself. Most marriages are contractual. And even in a covenant, there's an element of contract. There's a contract at the root of the covenant. A covenant, in a sense, is a contract that only ends with the death of one of the contracting parties. So can two people make a covenant? Of course they can. It is human to make covenants. It's a, it's, it's a normal thing we've always done. The wonder is that God stoops to make covenant with us. There, are, there is another large monotheistic religion that believes God does not make covenants with people, and they don't make covenants with each other, uh, strictly speaking. That, that God, that would demean God that he should make a covenant with human beings, and that's exactly the point of it, that God has stooped down for love of us to make a covenant, and that's... Definitely, what the uh, is said in, in in the first reading today that that the the, the sacrificial covenant means that God lowered Himself and thank God He did. So yes, uh, we respect the marriage between two non-Catholics. If two people enter into a covenant, then we respect that covenant. Uh, so and it's that question and. Uh, um, this is uh, uh, just a very kind letter. This is from uh, Dennis, so thanks for the letter. All right, let's move on. Well, let me look at the clock here. We're doing fine. All right. Um, Father Simon, the caller about when God created the soul states a question of the ages, it seems. I have heard at times over the years that St. Thomas, in his era, made some pronouncement like this. Uh, it would have been St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, not St. Thomas the Apostle, I think you're referring to. I believe I also heard Patrick Weird say that since the angelic doctor, St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, could be an error here. 
any self-respecting biologist nowadays knows that a human uh, conceptus, something conceived by a human, is alive. However, the sacred and sold human being is not recognized as a, a legal person by atheists and other, well, the word, <laughs> other people, even uh, up to birth. An answer might uh, be to habitually uh, be conscious of the reality that with, along with all creation, we are being created moment to moment rather than than we are or were created. So, yeah, this St. Thomas Aquinas was not sure uh, when, as far as I understand, when the 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 child in the womb was ensouled. Um, and you know, this is this is sounds pretty presumptuous because St. Thomas Aquinas was one of the smartest human beings ever to live. But he himself said of what he'd written that it was all straw. At the end, uh, he was uh, kind of taken out of theology by a, a great mystical experience. So um, he said it was all straw. And uh, I look at St. Augustine, for instance, another of the great minds of, of the West, who said the era of miracles was over. And then miracles started happening at the uh, a shrine uh, of a martyr in his diocese. He changed his mind. But... People look at he said, well, the marriage of miracles is over. Well, yeah, he changed his mind. That great scholars don't stop being great scholars. They continue learning. So, um, <clears throat> incontrovertibly, a child in the womb from the moment of conception is alive. And what kind of life is it? Human life. Whether there is a soul there, and I believe that, that, that the soul and the body are two manifestations of the person, one in one dimension, one in another dimension, the physical dimension and the spiritual dimension. So I am a living being. I am a spirit who manifests himself in the flesh and in the soul. That's, I, I, have, I may be wrong about this, but I have struggled for decades to come to an understanding of body, soul, and spirit. We think, well, you got the spirit, and then beneath that you got the soul, and then you got the body. I don't think that way. I, I, I have come to believe that, that the spirit manifests itself physically and uh, um, psychically. <laughs> That's the word in Greek. So, okay, not, I'm not talking about voodoo practitioners and fortune tellers, but the, I am a spirit who manifests in a soul and in a body. So I am my body. I am my soul. They're inseparable in a human being. So if this is human life, I would, I would tend to think that, that um, the soul is, is present as the body is present from the moment of conception. There's a separate, as soon as there's a separate DNA, the body's there. And as soon as the body's there, I, I suspect the soul is there. That's just me. Again, I may be wrong. Now, that said, it is incontrovertibly human life that is growing in the womb of a pregnant woman. This is not going to come out as a, as a duck-billed platypus. This is human life. And to respect human life is, is essential. If we don't respect human life, we become Nazis. If we say there is inferior, uh, an inferior form of human life, we become Nazis. Have we learned nothing from the, the horrors of the 20th century? Apparently not. That... that um, Hitler was a big proponent of abortion of the people he didn't particularly like, as was Margaret Sanger, foundress of Planned Parenthood. 
So uh, let us not follow the Nazis like Sanger and and uh, Hitler. Let us follow the, the the Holy Spirit who infuses life into the uh, into human beings. All right. So that that thought. Thanks for the note. Let me find my mouse and click the appropriate button. All right. I think we're going to go to a break now. We will come back with a word of the day, a fun word of the day. And uh, the phones are open at 888-914-9149. 888-914-9149. Amen. Our sponsor, the Catholic Order of Foresters, is here to help with this year's health insurance open enrollment. They offer individual, couple, and family options to best fit your needs. Before January 15th, visit relevantradio.com slash forester. in my head's in a very funky mood today. We're playing interesting stuff. Some jazz, you know, from Motown. It's great. Well, that said, let us go to the oh, the, 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 the phones, 888-914-9149. Let's go to the word of the day. Ooh, that was a powerful banging of the gong. Um, the, the, the word of the day is novena. Novena. I've been talking a little bit about uh, the way we look at the church, that that we are looking through a, a more business-friendly lens these days, and I'm not so sure that that's why. Certainly there is business in the business of religion. Um, the apostles had a treasurer, Judas. But moving along, well, it's in the Bible. What am I going to say? So, But I want to talk about the word novena. That's the word of the day, novena. It comes from the Latin word for nine, novum. And... Um, where did we get the idea of a novena from the nine days bef- between the Ascension and Pentecost? Of course, Peter was working on the sermon. They were printing up the song sheets and looking for extra overflow parking. Of course they weren't. They were praying. And the idea is they were waiting on God, waiting for God to speak. In the old good old Pentecostal days, I remember they used to have something called the Terry Service in which they would just go into the church, lock the doors on a Saturday night, and wait on the Lord. I remember the old Puerto Rican ladies used to uh, lock themselves in a church with a coffee pot and a few pillows and blankets, their Bibles and a couple tambourines, and they just waited on the Lord. And that's the idea of a novena. Now, most people look at a novena as, I say these prayers, and I'm going to get what I want. No. You come before the Lord with an issue in your life, and you say, I'm going to spend nine days praying, speak, Lord, your servant listens. The point of a novena is to hear from God. It isn't to get what you want. You know, that may sound a little radical because, of course, we all know that novenas are to get what you want. No, our purpose is not to get what we want. It's to get what God wants. Again, I always do what is pleasing to the Father. A novena is nine days of prayer dedicated to a certain issue in your life. You know, these, this has never been known to fail. Rip it up, throw it out. I have thrown out, so, you know, those things that you see in the back of church. Make nine copies of this and leave it in nine different churches. 
I have ripped up so many of those, and I still at this advanced age have ten toes and ten fingers. Rip it up, throw it away. They're rank superstition, and to reproduce them uh, is is the sin of superstition. So don't don't sin. Rip them up. A novena is waiting on God for nine days, as did the apostles in the in the upper room. All right, let's go to phone calls. Yellow. Uh, Father John, hello. What can I do for you? Hey, Father, how are you? Very good, very good, very good. What's, 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 since last we met, which was not long ago, so what can I do for you, or what can you do for me? You know, I was uh, ordained for almost five years, and I think something that, there's a lot, been a lot of striking things, not to mention the pandemic that's happened in the midst of ministry, but there's just the increasing number of, you know, my peers, people that I've known for a long time, certainly friends from high school and college, and that have just grown in their unaffiliated status, right? The, the nuns that we hear yeah, about that no yeah. longer subscribe to any faith. And I think, you know, as a priest with just the number, number of vocations that are, that are there and a community is something that you sort of have to foster. And of course the fellowship and friendship I have with priests is so, is so important, but just, I guess, evangelizing people who know you and people who are of your same age. If you just want to maybe give advice to a young priest on, on maybe just your experience of, evangelizing people who know you from the same generation, same experience that for now have sort of come to see what the Lord offers and have turned away. Just be really interested to hear what you have to say. Well, if you're, you know, for me, evangelism really is about getting someone to say you to God. You know, we think of, we confuse catechesis and evangelism. Uh, The best definition I have ever heard of evangelism is to bring people to a saving knowledge of Christ. And you do that by praying with them. Uh, um, you know, as a priest, I'm in a, in, a, in a wonderful position to do that, to say, would you like to, me to pray with you? They expect it from me, and mm-hmm. they'll, they'll put up with it. But anyone can do that. And, uh, you know, back in my youth, before I was a priest and much involved with all the, the, the Pentecostal prayer groups and all that, I really discovered that if you can, if someone comes up to you with a tale of woe, which everyone has got, and you can say mm-hmm. to them, would you like me to pray for you? Very rare is the person who will say no. So, okay, well, close your eyes. And, and Lord, I had this problem, and you, you, you really entered my life here. I ask you to touch my brother, touch my, my sister, and, and just let them know you love them. It's amazing what that does. I remember one young man who uh, was talking about the philosophy of Christianity. I said to him, Christianity's not a philosophy. It's a person. He said, what do you mean? I said, close your eyes. Um, and, you know, if it's appropriate to, to put your hand on a shoulder, these days that's not terribly appropriate in most cases. But if you know someone well, uh, that's, that's okay, the, 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 the human touch. But um, I'll never forget, I just said, basically said that prayer with him. I said, Lord, when I was this guy's age, I came to know you and to love you, and I asked you to touch his life and his heart. And I left the room. And he came out and I said, wow, I've never felt that in my life. You know, that, that wow. you want to bring people to a saving knowledge of Christ. You want to introduce them to the Lord, and he'll do the rest of it. But most of us think we can argue people into faith. And it isn't about a set of facts. It's about trusting a person and the facts that he tells us. So uh, I think that, that that's the most effective kind of evangelism that I know of. Uh, sometimes you can pray with large groups of people. Um, sometimes you pray with individuals. But to get someone to say, you to the Lord, um, to address the Lord in the second person. Once they, you know, St. Alphonsus Liguria said, he who prays is saved. So and the rest will come naturally. So that's, that's, that's kind of what I believe about evangelism. The more you can pray with a person, 
the more they know Christ. So there you go. Yeah, amen. Thank you. Well, there you go. And and uh, do give my, my very best regards to your archbishop, a splendid fellow, and uh, a great example of what a good priest can be. I have known him a long Absolutely, time. Absolutely, I will. All right. God bless, John. It was a delight to, to meet you and great fun to talk to you. And speaking of, you. Of, of Father Lacoco, Father John, oh dear, I think I read it out his last name. Sorry about that. But um, <laughs> uh, there you go. He is a student of canon law. And uh, yesterday someone called in an Armenian saying that uh, can an Armenian go to Catholic communion? And the answer is if they are disposed, yes, if they do it on their own initiative. In other words, I don't invite mm-hmm. them to communion, uh, but if they go on their own initiative, I think is a canon 894, I forget which canon it is. But uh, yes, that we allow that. Now, for us to go to communion Orthodox Church, we have to respect their rules, and they generally do not let us take Holy Communion in their they, they have rigorous fasting, and, and um, so we have to respect that. But we, we, we right. Orthodox people are allowed to receive communion if they do so on their own initiative, especially if it's a case where there's not a church of their particular uh, <laughs> flavor. So there you go. So we were discussing it earlier today. So thanks, Father John. It's good to talk to you. God bless Thank you. And, and uh, many God blessings bless. on your ministry. Hang in there, brother. All right. Let us go to uh, uh, Irene. Are you with us, Irene, from San Diego? Yes, I'm here. Good. Can you hear me? Yes, Father? I can. Okay, thank you so much for your show, first of all. I have a question regarding the formula for the consecration of the blood, where it says uh, blood that it will be poured for you and many, etc., for the forgiveness Mm -hmm. of the sins. Yes. Okay, um, uh, this is the version version used in uh, USA, Mm -hmm. but I've been listening to the Vatican's Mm -hmm. mass uh, uh, with the Pope. And he says, uh, per tutti. Per tutti. Uh, from, huh. I checked the Latin, is pro multis. Pro multis, yes. Yes, um, for many. So it's not, it's not for everybody, but um, I would like to know what's the original. What did Jesus say? And why there is such a humongous yes. difference between the two yes. versions, yes. the U.S. and Italy? Well, I don't, I don't know what's going on in Italy. Whether they have have returned to a more, a traditional part, it isn't necessary for the validity of the sacrament. This is my blood, is necessary for the validity of the sacrament. Um, but Jesus said in Greek "polois," which means many. Well, is, didn't he do it for everyone? Well, yes, of course he did it for everyone. Well, then why why did this says in Greek and in Latin and now in English and so many other languages for many? Isn't that exclusive? Doesn't that leave people out? you got to understand what the word many meant in its context. You had rule by the one, monarchy, rule by the, the, the best, aristocracy, rule by the few, oligarchy, and then you had the poloi, the unwashed mob, the unimportant people. And that's what Jesus said at the Last Supper. This is being poured out for unimportant people. So it's very inclusive uh, in, in the consciousness of, of, or the definition of the time of the word many. It isn't exclusive. The point is that it is for people who the world think are unimportant, the many. Not the one, not the few, not the rich, not the best. The many. And to the degree a person can say, I'm just a poor sinner, that's the person it's poured out for. It's not poured out for the the great and the and the perfect. It's poured out for, for the many, the, the the people who are 
our sinners. Does that help a little bit? Uh, yes, but so <clears throat> uh, not for the monarchy. Oh, well, also... no, no, no. They're they're included. They're, they're included, okay. but to the degree they admit that they're sinners in need of grace. You know, say, well, I don't need grace. I'm the king. I'm the duke. I'm I'm rich. I don't need God's grace. I've got a I've got money. Why do I need God's grace? Well, they are not the many then. But when they say yeah, I may have money, but I'm a poor sinner, then they become one of the many, one of the unwashed okay. mob. So yes, he, it's for okay, everybody. I got it. There you I go. Well, good to talk to you, Irene. God bless you. And thank, and, uh, thank you. And, and he's you. Parla Italiano, see? Dove in Italia? De che parte d'Italia? Eh, di Milano. Ah, Milano, Milano. I know I visited Milano, but it, I hear it's beautiful. Well, God bless you. Yeah. Nice to talk to you, Irene. Uh, Arrivederci. Uh, ciao. Okay, let's <laughs> let's go to Ava. Ava from Albuquerque. Are you with us? Yes. What can I, I do for you? Father. Yes. Um, thank you for taking my call. A Simon's mother-in-law today. Yes. In the gospel, he she lay sick with fever. Now, Simon Peter was the first pope, so yes. why did he have a mother-in-law? Because he was married. <laughs> but, so the first pope was married then? Yes, so most that... of the popes were. The last married pope was around 500 A.D. when they told him, well, your wife should go to a convent. Your wife and daughter should go to a convent. He said, nonsense, they're moving into the Lateran Palace with me. This is history oh. that 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 uh, priestly celibacy, which I think in general is a good idea, at least up to this point. Uh, it's not integral to the priesthood. It is a discipline that helps with the priesthood. In the Eastern Church, priests generally are married. The Eastern Catholic churches, they're generally married. Uh, um, so celibacy developed uh, through uh, monasteries, uh, but the diocesan priests up until— a certain point, we're generally married men. Um, uh, and and uh, there's all sorts of controversy about it, but it's pretty evident that, yeah, yeah, I know of no other way to get a mother-in-law other than to be married to a wife. Right, and I just was, I was just sure that he was not married because we are always saying that we can't, they can't, the priests can't be married. And I would think that the Pope especially couldn't be married, yeah. you know, yeah. Especially the first pope. <laughs> well, uh, no, uh, they can be married, but in our times, they may not be married in the in the Latin rite of the church. There are all sorts of married Catholic priests. I mean, and legitimately oh. married. You know, in the in the Anglican use, uh, we have married men. In the Eastern rites, we have married men. Uh, in the oh. West, we found that it was a very useful discipline to be. To be celibate, uh, and and um, you know, uh, at the moment, uh, I think the priesthood is in great crisis, and I pray that we restore, as uh, Father John just spoke, we restore the fellowship. He alluded to it, I think, briefly, if I understood, to, to the idea of a real fellowship of priests, because it's not good for man to be alone. And I, I I see so many priests who are really living and working alone, and that's not healthy. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, and and we need to look at, if we're going to sustain celibacy, we need to look at the living conditions of diocesan priests. And um, it's it's an important thing. Uh, as I said, the, the, when I was a boy, and the woolly mammoth still roamed, a priest was expected to die in his rectory. He was a pastor for life, with very few exceptions. And the parish became his family. Now you're 70 years old, they give you a wonderful party, a hearty hand clasp, and say you're on your own. And, and uh, it's become, uh, you know, it, it, the idea of changing a pastor every few years is, 
counterfamilial. And, and I think we really need to look at it uh, if we're going to sustain uh, the diocesan structure. So that's just me. Again, third day in a row, I've ground that X, and I don't want to grind it anymore. Enough with the X. But thanks for calling in. Interesting, no? Thank Let, you, Father. God bless you, Ava. Let's go to Maria, who's calling in from Castlebury in Florida. Yes. What can, uh, hi, what, Father. Hi, what can I do for you? You talk today a lot about following God's will in yes. one form or another. And uh, what I was wondering is that if you if you feel that you've heard what he wants you to do, but you fail to do it, what happens then? Well, he keeps reminding you, at least when me, he doesn't let he doesn't let it go easily. And, uh, you know, there's a parable in Scripture. Jesus says, there were two sons. The father said to one, go out and work in the field. And he said, I will not. And he said to the other one, go out and work in the field. And he said, I will. The one who said he will didn't go out and work in the field. But the one who said, I will not, he went out and worked in the field, which is the one who did the will of his father. So we always have the chance to say, I'm sorry, Lord, I'm going to do what you want, you know, to the best of my ability. But it's never, you know, God, when he speaks to us, the Scripture says, always speaks through Two or three, uh, two or three witnesses. In other words, you get an idea in your head. This is what God wants. It may be, it may not be. You got to confirm that word. You got to pray about it, and talk to your pastor. Talk to people with whom you pray. Uh, yeah. Talk to friends in the church. Say, you know, I've been thinking this is what God wants me to do. What do you think? Uh, so every word is confirmed by two or three witnesses. You just don't go off half baked. Say, well, this is what God wants. I feel it in my heart. Well, your heart may be wrong. You got to confirm it. And then if you are absolutely convinced, then you do your best to do it. And also very important to, to take the Ten Commandments into, uh, into your discernment process. Very important to take uh, the Scriptures into your discernment process because if you think God's telling you to go up in a water tower with a machine gun and shoot people, he's not doing that. <laughs> that that's not the Lord, right. the Scripture. So, so you do it with discernment, but you really you do it. Does that help a little? It does, Father. Thank you very much. God bless, and thanks for calling in. Let us go now to Amanda. Are you with us, Amanda? I'm here. Good, from Hi, Orange County. What can I do for you, Amanda? So I ha I just heard you talking about offering prayers to people or, or offering to pray for others, right? Yes. And now let's take it the other way, where in my situation, I have a friend who's Hindu, and she's, you know, very, very devout, mm -hmm. and she's always... Um, she, she will say, I will pray for you. Or Now, what if she were to say to me, can I pray for you and, and offer her that's specific fine. prayers in that moment? That's fine. That's okay? If she was, oh, if she was to say, let me pray with you, I would not do that. She is praying. Uh, uh, you could say to her, well, I only pray to Jesus. I would be, I'm grateful that you'll pray for me, but, but I, I can't pray with you because... I only pray. I will pray to Jesus. Well, then that might change it. But you have to be careful that you are not praying to false gods. So, you know, you can be polite about it. Say, you know, I'm grateful that you would pray for me, but but I, I don't know that I'm comfortable praying with you uh, unless we're talking to Jesus. I hope that helps. Speaking of talking to Jesus, Drew is coming up, and he does that all the time. 